Hi, I'm Ursuline Bryant. I was Captain Charlie Scott on Star Trek The Next Generation, the episode Conspiracy. And you are listening to Trek Untold. Welcome back to Trek Untold, the Star Trek-inspired podcast that goes beyond the stars. I'm your host, Matthew Kaplowitz. Looking back on the first season of Star Trek The Next Generation, you can see a show that was trying to find its voice and figure itself out. After all, this was Star Trek, but it was Star Trek almost 20 years since the original series aired. The actors from the original series are still making movies, but Next Gen took place in an entirely different era, and so too did the show have to become more modern for the 80s. Some episodes of the first season have an age too well from all sorts of different perspectives, and some are just outright oddities. Case in point, the episode our guest on today's show appeared in. Ursula and Bryant played the role of Captain Trilus Scott in the episode Conspiracy, which was a tonally darker episode than just about every Trek show ever at that point. But for Ursula, it was really a dream come true to be on Star Trek, a show she watched growing up and had quite a deep connection with. Her career goes light years beyond Trek, though, as we discuss her roles before and after her time serving Starfleet, as well as what she's doing nowadays. She's got some very fun stories to talk about working on shows like The Golden Girls, Seinfeld, The Red Fox Show, and a lot of wisdom to share as well. Before we begin this episode, I'd like to remind you to follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Trek Untold. One word, no spaces. You can also support our show by visiting patreon.com slash trekuntold. If you're already following us or offering your support in any way, thank you for your help. Most of all, please make sure to subscribe to this podcast and leave a rating and review wherever it is that you're listening to it. This helps more people find us and hear the show. And I'd also like to make a quick shout out to our friends at Triple Fiction Productions, who make some great 3D printed Star Trek inspired products for toys and people. But you're going to hear more about them a little bit later. Now, without further ado, let's beam up this week's guest. Computer, access interview file. Affirmative. Initiating program. All right, welcome back to Trek Untold. Now, joining me on the other side of the line, we now have Ursuline Bryant, who you might remember mm-hmm. from season one episode of Next Gen Conspiracy. Ursuline, how are you doing today? I'm doing very well today. How are you? I'm doing all right. You know, we're in some crazy times, of course, right now in the world, and I'm so glad I connect with you over the phone to chat a little bit about Star Trek yeah. and your entire career. Yes, yes, I appreciate that. So let's just start at the beginning with the question I like to start all these interviews with. And that is, what was your earliest memory of Star Trek? Oh, oh, Captain Kirk and Spock. <laughs> I fell in love with Spock. And I would watch that original series uh, whenever it was on. And when it got canceled and came back in reruns, I watched it over and over again. And I wanted to connect with the stars as well. So that was my first. It was the original Star Trek series that got me hooked. Now, can you tell us a little bit about your childhood? Like, where were you born? Who were your parents? What did they do? Well, I was born in Washington, D.C. My parents are no longer with me uh, or with us. They've transcended and transitioned on to hopefully a much, much better place. But my mom worked in the school system in um, Washington, D.C., and my father I did not know a lot about. So I saw him once or twice, and then that was that. So what got you interested in becoming an actress? Well, I actually want to learn to fly planes. (laughs) 
And that was because I, I was a stargazer. I would look up at the sky at night. I would lie on the grass in the summer and watch the star and the heavens. And I just wanted to be a part of that. But alas, I, um, I transcended to what I physically was about, five foot ten, very thin, very agile. So I started modeling in Washington, D.C., which turned me into um, uh, on, on TV. I was doing TV commercials. I was doing runway shows on TV in um, Washington, D.C., and uh, that got me my aftercard, and I did not know how valuable that was until I got to New York. So I left shortly, went to New York, started modeling, and then one day I was sitting in front of the camera, and I said, okay, I think I want to do a little more. And then I started taking acting classes and found out that the drama was already there, and I just explored it. Can you tell us where you studied acting? Yes, I started with the Negro Ensemble Company in New York. Uh, when I transitioned to Los Angeles, I studied with the renowned, and he's no longer with us either, Milton Katzelis. I did workshops with Lynn Redgrave, studied uh, Shakespeare with her, uh, Bea Richards' uh, workshops, and things of that nature. So they always, um, I'm, I'm a life student, so I'm continuing to study, and, and my study takes me in many different paths, but... At that time, um, Inner City Cultural Center was up and running. So I studied so much there, dance and movement and acting techniques and Shakespeare workshops. So, yeah, those are some of the things that I've done. Haven't visited that resume in so long, I, I forget some things. Well, we always like to chat with people who have Shakespearean backgrounds. <laughs> and that's a very strong pedigree to have uh, to be learning acting from. Can you just tell us if there was one lesson you learned during that time that stuck with you to this day? Milton Katzelis, when I first began to study with him, he suggested reading. And it had nothing to do with what I felt acting was at that time. He suggested that I read Autobiography of a Yogi. Now, it wasn't just me. It was the entire class. But I found out that that was a deeper connection for me because there's nothing outside of me. And it's all inside. So I began, at, I think that was my introduction into real self-reflection and self-development and self-evolvement. And that book I continued to read. Um, it led me on to things like chop wood, carry water, which is such a great discipline, very simplistic, but a wonderful discipline. Um, other than that... And then he kicked me out of class and said, go. <laughs> Find what you need to do. But, you know, I'm still searching. I'm still, still searching. Uh, not for the perfect path, but for the one that I can lend the gifts that I have to and create a better whole. All right, very good. Now, according to IMDb, your first show was Bronk in 1975, but I'm sure you did some things before that. So can you kind of just give us a little quick overview of what led oh, you to your wow. first TV appearance? My first TV appearance. Oh, my goodness. I, oh, no. I guess I should have my resume in front of me, but I don't. <laughs> That's right. I'll walk you through it. I got it all. <laughs> it, it, wasn't, it wasn't. Yes, please walk me through it. But Bronk was not the first one. Yeah, I think Bronk, which, by the way, we'll mention right, right now, was, uh, that appearance was 1975. It was a detective show with Jack Palance. You know, Jack Palance was one of my, my, my idols. I, I really loved his work. He was so in-depth and 
I mean, everything he said came out of his mouth was so believable. And so it was a real pleasure, even though I didn't get a one-on-one with him in a scene, it was a great pleasure to be into, uh, be a part of something that he was involved with. Uh, you know what? I'm going to let this ride for a minute. My memory has a way of coming back, and I'm reaching for it, but it's just not there right now. I cannot remember it. Let me help jog your memory a little bit here, because I can tell you a little bit more about that episode you did. Uh, you played the character okay. Michelle. You were the wife of oh, Austin goodness. Stoker's character. Yes. And unfortunately, okay. basically within the first five minutes of the episode, you die in a car crash. Well, basically your car explodes. I know. I remember that. So I just wanted to know, I mean, basically most of your screen time was with Austin Stoker, who, very strong actor, very underrated, still works today. He's done so many things. Uh, do you remember yes. any time you spent with him working on that episode? Well, Austin and I became very good friends on that show. Uh, I had known a little bit about bef- uh, before him because we, uh, I would see him out on auditions and things of that nature. And I think we even might have done a TV commercial together. I'm not sure. But he, we did become friends, and that kind of locked it in. And I just always admired his work, so I would support him, you know, going out to see the theaters, uh, the plays that he was doing, and vice versa. Did he ever give you any really great life advice or acting advice that you've held on to? No, I can't remember. I mean, I'm sure he did. You know, everyone that I've worked with, I have uh, been fortunate enough to take something valuable away. I think the thing of it is, is to, um, and I don't know if he brought this to me, it's just to be who you are and find that character within the realm of who you are without searching all over the place outside of yourself, but to dig deeper and pull out the layers and then just let it flow. So it seems at this point, a lot of your acting theory is based on getting those intrinsic elements within you and getting them externally so the audience can understand that. Is that correct? That is correct. I think we come equipped. I mean, we as a whole, as a people, everybody comes here for a very different purpose. And uh, nobody can do what we do or how we do it. But you don't know that, you know, as a child, as a teenager, as a young adult, as an old adult, you're still looking and searching. Um, I am at a place where I'm very pleased with myself. I have looked back on some of the things I've done. I'm like, oh, my goodness, you have been in the company of some phenomenal people. And um, I've learned a lot of lessons. But intrinsically, I still search within that is my motivation all right very good now we're not going to go through every single thing you've done on your resume because there's so much but i do want to just pick up a few other highlights uh, and that includes your time working on the hardy boys and nancy drew mysteries yes and then eventually uh, we come to 1986 which is one of the things i guess i've seen with you a hundred times and didn't know you were in it until today but you were in one of the best episodes ever of the golden girls <laughs> <laughs> I had. I am so glad you bring that up. Now that was a master class. So just so our listeners know, that episode of Ladies of the Evening, and that's an episode where the Golden Girls they all get arrested for being mistaken as prostitutes, and you are literally locked in a cell with B. Arthur, Betty White, and Rue McClanahan. <laughs> what is that like? Yes, that was a master class in human nature and the art of acting, the craft. These women were so phenomenal. Never missed the beat did not miss a joke, whether it's subtle or or overt or over the top even. They were masters at what they did. I mean, it was so, 
I was so grateful to be on that set. I, I wouldn't leave. I mean, I'd watch everything that I could watch. I'd listen. But being there was like, wow, a dream come true, I would say. So what were those ladies like offset? Offset, they were great. You know, they were very, very into themselves. Um, they would go their separate ways, especially B. Arthur. She was very, um, I would say, very reserved. I'm going to use that word because that's what most people think of me, that I'm shy, and I am, uh, but I'm just not, I, I call myself, a, what is that, an introverted extrovert. <laughs> and that's what B. Arthur appeared to be to me. She was very, very quiet and uh, would, would easily remove herself. You know, she'd show up when it was time to be there, but she was not always around when she was not needed. And I, and I completely understood that. But it was just, you know, they were joyful, just absolutely joyful. I had a great time. Uh, Betty White, oh, was, is miraculous. And uh, I, I learned from her that, and this may be common knowledge, she might have said it on a talk show or something that every birthday when she was married to Alan Ludden, he would give her a Cadillac. And so every day she would arrive at the studio in a different Cadillac. <laughs> wow. Not just one Cadillac, but multiple Cadillacs. I know. It was wonderful. It was absolutely wonderful. Now, that episode's also known for being the one where, uh, spoiler alert, at the end, Burt Reynolds makes a surprise cameo. Were you there on set the day he showed up, or were you not working that day? No, I wasn't working that day, but I knew he'd be there. I, I had met Burt Reynolds somewhere, sometime. I was interested in his theater. He had a theater at one point in Florida, and I was interested in, in studying, uh, or, or at least going there. So I don't know if I met him in person. I just reached out to him via resume and email. I think that might have been it. Um, but no, I was not there on that day. In terms of acting, were there any other actors or actresses that inspired you, uh, especially early on in your career, to pursue this craft? Uh, yes. Uh, Ron O'Neill in particular. Um, Ron is or was one of the unsung heroes of the stage. Not only was he known, I mean, Superfly flung him to superstardom, but here was a man that was so ensconced in his craft. Um, I loved his, um, his dedication. Um, he was also very into the classics, which is something that he did not, or most of us do not get an opportunity to show. And that inspired me to to always look outside of what I appear to be. Yeah, Ron O'Neill was a real working man's actor. Did you ever get a chance to work with him? No, I didn't. I met him years ago when I was in New York. I was still modeling at the time. Um, and that's where I met a lot of people uh, who became household names. New York was an extraordinary growing experience for me. And uh, I knew of him, but I never got the opportunity to work with him. Uh, that, that's unfortunate, but uh, I'm going to move ahead to uh, 1986 for a quickie here where you did get to meet a lot of real few big names and a few up and comers at the time. And that was when you were part of the Red Fox show. <laughs> yes. And you had the pleasure yeah. of working with Red Fox, with Sinbad, Beverly Todd, a very yeah. young Pamela Adlon. Yeah. You even did an episode with Vanessa yeah. Williams. Right. Right, right, right. Your character was Doris. Uh, I believe you were on four episodes of, the, of that one season that they did. Uh, and it's a great show. People can track it down. It's actually on YouTube. You do a little digging, you can find it. 
Um, but I just want to ask what your experience wow. is like being on that show and working with all these great comedians, especially Red Fox. Master. He was a master comedian. No, he was a master of life. Let me put it that way. He was an artisan, a craftsperson. And I was just glued to, um, I mean, once again, his timing. Once again, his writing. Once again, his quips that just came out naturally um, that were usually incorporated into what we were doing. And uh, it, it was magnificent. It was, I was in awe. You know, because of this this raw, cutting-edge talent that uh, had always been there and always been aware of him and the different genres that he'd worked in and loved the, um, his show, his original show, uh, the Red Fox show. But this was um, amazing to be there. And Sinbad, he was just getting started. <laughs> it was wonderful. I see him off and on now. And uh, we're still locked in because of that... Um, um, uh, experience. Now, Beverly Todd, I've known for a very long time. Uh, her husband at one point, her ex-husband, I should say, was one of my teachers at the Inner City Cultural Center. So that's how we met there. But I've always been aware of Beverly's work and always admired her, and we became very good friends. Um, not that we hung out together or anything, but we were there, we were in the same spaces all the time. She was a part of a group that had a, uh, I, I believe, I can't remember the name of it, but around the holidays, the Christmas holiday in particular, she and whether a lot of other well-known women of the screen would gather together and throw this event. So I knew that I was going to at least see her at least once a year. And I haven't seen her lately, though. But, uh, yes, that was a wonderful opportunity. It seemed like everybody had a lot of fun on that show. <laughs> we did. I'm curious to learn a little bit more about Red Fox and what it was like being just that close to him, be able to work with him. What was that experience like? Uh, it was, wow, how do I, I, I don't know that I have a word for it. It, it was an amazing experience uh, because he would come over and he would just whisper things in my ear as to where this character was really coming from. Um, he shared some things uh, about timing without sharing them, without making it uh, a teaching or anything like that. But he was, he was amazing. He was a very open and, and honest and giving individual. So I just soaked it up and carried it with me and was all the better for it. Now, up until that point, uh, I'm kind of curious about your career. Um, did you find it difficult to find work as a woman of color? Oh, absolutely. To this day, even. Did you find yourself like typecast or put into roles that really weren't that great for what you could do? Well, I was typecast because of being a woman of color. And because of being a woman of color and not fitting in the roles of that time. I mean, there were, there were very specific roles that were, I mean, very specific images that were being shown at that time. They still are, but not as overtly as they were. So, yeah, which is why I took to the stage. Uh, I've always been a part of the stage. Um, that has always been my go-to when I wanted to express something outside of who I look like and what I was thought of 
um, I went to the stage and got the opportunity and made the opportunity of performing all sorts of characters. But for film and, and, and TV, yes, absolutely. It was, it's very difficult. And we're going to definitely chat a little bit more about some of your theater experience uh, closer to the end of this interview here. But there's one last thing I want to discuss before we move into Star Trek. And that's a movie you did in 1981 called All the Marbles. This is a really unique <laughs> film. You remember that? <laughs> How could I forget? I remember it vividly. Yes. All right. So just for our listeners who don't know what this movie is, uh, this was a comedy starring Peter Falk. He's the manager of a women's pro wrestling tag team. They're played by Vicky Frederick and Laureen Landon. It's also got Burt Young in it, who I love seeing in everything he does. Mm -hmm. uh, and you played uh, one of the wrestlers from the main event of the film. You're one half of the Toledo Tigers. Mm -hmm. uh, your other tag team partner was played by Tracy Reed, and you guys were managed by the late John Hancock, also an actor who appeared in Next Gen. Uh, and you guys got to wrestle in basically the centerpiece of the film, the, the big finale of the film, a 20-minute long match. You guys are working. You guys are taking bumps. You're doing flying moves. You guys are actually wrestling a really fast-paced match. So... I think the first question about that is who trained you guys to compete? Because that's you out there doing all those stunts, correct? That's correct. We were trained by the the teachers of the first woman wrestling champion. Her name was Mildred Burke. Oh, wow. And, yeah, Millie Burke had a, a studio out in, I think it was the Valley. And that's where we were trained every day for what seems like months, <laughs> <laughs> but they trained us and uh, it was, uh, uh, oh my gosh, it was an experience that I will never forget. I never thought that I would wear high heels again. Bodies were bruising and battered and yes, we really hit that mat. So yeah, Mildred Burke and her teachers trained us. That's impressive. Yeah. And, that, and again, if you guys who are listening and track down that scene, it is out there available to, long, to look for if you can dig for it. Uh, it's just tremendous to watch because you guys are really working, though. It's an intense, fast, long match. Yeah. yeah. And one thing I'd like to say is our director. Oh, he's passed on now. And tell me his name. Tell me his name. Uh, our director and producer said that he wanted um, actors to learn to wrestle as opposed to uh, wrestlers coming in trying to act. And so what he did was gather, there were like 12 of us that were trained. And Tracy and I came out to be the Toledo, Toledo Tigers. And that director, by the way, was Robert Aldrich. He also directed The That's Longest it. Yard, uh, Whatever Happened to That's Baby it. Jane, a lot of really, really great pieces. That was him, absolutely. And he was a huge wrestling fan. Oh, see, that I did not know. So that's how that film came about. Yes, that's exactly how it came about. He was a huge wrestling fan. And were you a wrestling fan at all? I used to watch it when I was a kid growing up. My mom loved it. <laughs> <laughs> and then all of a sudden, I stopped watching it. I went, oh, man, this is not real. I beg to differ. I beg to differ. You must be an athlete. You must be. You must have stamina. You must know how to take those stalls and take those licks and you know Tracy was great at the punch and I was great at the kick so that's how they trained us they said you know they work with our weaknesses they work with our strengths but you're absolutely right that was a grueling that was a grueling match um and I look back at it now and I, I'm really proud of the work because it is authentic oh absolutely I mean if you weren't acting I could have seen you easily have a career in pro wrestling because you were that good it was very impressive well I was asked to go out on the road, but I couldn't. 
I could barely walk. It took, <laughs> it, took year, it actually took years to heal. And um, there is a photograph that was taken, and then you may be able to see the still too, when we're in that last match and we're coming in and we're all made up and dressed up and we're with mean Joe Green. And I have a pom-pom and it's hanging down in front of my knee. My knee, um, when, when, you're, when you're taught to fall, you take the weight on the bottom of your feet and your shoulders. Well, the weight was so intense that it began to affect my knee. And my knee was like three times its size. But uh, it was amazing. I, so no, I could not go out on the road. And I said, uh, I need to heal. I need to heal. And, uh, uh, but it was an extraordinary experience. And thank you, by the way. Thank you. Well, thank you. you, you I say it from the bottom of my heart as a giant pro wrestling fan. Uh, and the fact that you got to work with Mildred Burke as well. I mean, that's just, that's living, well, not living anymore, but at the time, living legend. I mean, that's amazing. Right. Uh, as I said, when I look back, I went, oh, my goodness. If I never do another thing in this industry, I'm satisfied. I've done some wonderful things. Not a household name, but that's okay. The experience is what makes you the whole person. And, and I'm very happy about those experiences. Trek Untold will return momentarily. Trek Untold is brought to you by Triple Fiction Productions. If you're a Star Trek cosplayer looking for props or toy collector looking to spice up your shelves, Triple Fiction Productions has you covered. Triple Fiction Productions produces affordable and unique 3D printed Trek inspired products from the original series, Next Generation, Deep Space Nine, Voyager, Enterprise, and the movies. You can expect the same amount of care and attention to detail in any of the items in their catalog, whether it's a prop replica for use in a fan film, or part of a cosplay, or accessories and playsets for figures from Playmates, Migos, or Diamond Select. Own your very own tricorder or phaser rifle with working lights, the bridge of the Enterprise E for your Playmates figures, or any other item from countless species and ships from the Star Trek universe. All products are 3D printed in the USA and are constantly evolving and improving based on fan feedback. To learn more about their products, visit them at triple-fictionproductions.net or on Facebook at facebook.com slash triplefictionproductions. Triple Fiction Productions, taking Star Trek where no 3D printer has gone before. What's going on, everybody? It's your girl's favorite artist, Josie's boy. And I'm Alexis A. McCoy. And we are the hosts of Call Me When It's Over. We are more than just a podcast. We are a culture cast. Yes, and you can check us out every single Saturday with a brand new episode. We're available on iTunes, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and Google Play. And you can catch us on our homepage at RagesWorksNetwork.com. And don't forget to follow us on Instagram at underscore Call Me When It's Over. That's right. And as always, speak up, speak out. And leave your ego at the door. We now return to Trek Untold. All right, Ursula, now I think it's time. Let's get into your Star Trek appearance. And that was season one of Star Trek Next Generation. You were on episode 25, which was titled Conspiracy from 1988. So uh, tell us, how did you get cast for this role in Star Trek Next Generation? Well, I went out and auditioned at MGM at the time. It was just, uh, they, they were working on the MGM lot. And it was through the regular audition process. And I went in there with the, the silent prayer, <laughs> the silent wish. Okay, I am a lifelong trekker. This would be so great to be able, 
for Trekker to do a part on Star Trek. And that's all I remember. But it was through the regular audition process. I, I don't remember, I don't recall my agent at the time, but she sent me out. And uh, I was fortunate at the, that day that my name was called. And that led you down the path to become Captain Trilus Scott, who, according to the episode, was the uh, fastest made captain in Starfleet history. Now, did they give you much information about her to work from? Not at all. I, I know, and I had questions at the at that time, but it was up to me. It was my interpretation of who she was, and so that that's my claim to fame that she was, and the youngest. She came out no, not the youngest so much, but she came out of Starfleet Command ahead of Jean Luc Picard, even. Something I've heard from uh, other actors who've done Star Trek is they were told to act a little bit flatter so that the aliens could be more expressive. Was that any any piece of direction you received? I'm not sure. I don't remember. Were you given any instructions on like ways that a Starfleet officer should act or anything like that? Yes. Uh, and, and, and I don't remember the exact uh, direction that Cliff gave me, but I interpreted as though I was in some form of the service, the armed forces. You know, that would be my equivalent of being a captain on the Starfleet, in Starfleet Command. And that was the closest thing that I could come to. All my uncles were in the, the branches of the services, the Marines, the Army, the Navy. And I would, you know, have been in their company all my life. So that's where I took my lead from and just tried to translate it to being in space. And again, that kind of calls back to you talking earlier about taking things from within you and then putting them out onto the screen. Yes, yes, yes. It's called that, you know, it's that experience that we have and you go back and you recall it and it's there for you. It serves you well to pay attention to all of your experiences and not negate anything because you never know where you're going to have to pull from. Now, you mentioned Cliff Bowl, who was the director of this episode and Trek fans will remember him uh, since he directed over 40 episodes of Star Trek shows. Uh, he also is the man that they named the Bullion Race after, who was actually a character that appeared in this episode, too, for the first time. Wow. So this was his third episode to direct. And I've, I've heard some interesting things about Bull before. I've heard that Bull was actually one of the directors who talked down to Will Wheaton on set. Uh, so I just want to get a little bit more about your experience with Cliff. Hmm. Well, it was a very direct experience. I can't remember anything outside of him, you know, telling me, uh, giving him, giving me his insight on the back ground of who she was and it was no more than what I stated and so it was just up to me to interpret it he was a very generous uh, uh, director uh, but he knew what he wanted you know and of course on the uh, tv set time is always of the essence so there was no playing around there was no um, uh, like in theater it's a give and take sometimes you can walk away and come back and do the things differently the way you you see them but um uh, it's just straightforward, straight shoot. But he was absolutely, he knew what he was doing, obviously, because he'd been there for, um, as you said, over 40 episodes. And um, we had a great working relationship, is all I can boil it down to. Now, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like being on set? Because your two scenes that you did uh, were very interesting set pieces. For the first part mm-hmm. was a mine shaft with very heavy red lighting on it. And then the other scene, you're at Starfleet Command, which is, again, very, very different tonally and just the appearance of it. So uh, can you tell us a little bit about what it was like just being on those sets, uh, the shoot schedule, and what those days on set working were like? I know that I was just happy to be in the place and uh, to be working with those. The actors 
that I was surrounded with. And absolutely to meet Jean-Luc Picard. Oh, my goodness. That was, <laughs> that was I, I don't know, that was like surreal because I'd seen him in so many. I mean, he's just a master at his craft and went on to become an even greater master at his craft. So to be in that room was very fortunate. Um, he was very, uh, it's not, how can I say this? It was, he was, he was a pro. <laughs> I mean, he's just what you see. He is a pro. And uh, it was just magnificent to be in the room. Um, you know, TV is, is what it is. You, we can change um, backgrounds at the drop of a hat. And I've been there, you know, been on other TV sets, and, the, and that amazement never, and that uh, part of the industry never ceases to amaze me. The people behind the scenes, the people that are doing those sets, can put them up and take them down and turn them around and make them in something different uh, in, in the blink of an eye. So, but that's always fascinating to me. You know, the craft is sometimes overlooked, but it is so necessary. So, once again, I had a great time. And as you said, Patrick Stewart, he is the consummate pro and being someone yeah. that's involved in Shakespearean theater as well. I mean, you guys must have hit it off. Uh, and same with Jonathan Frakes, just another tremendous actor. Do you remember any interactions you had with either Patrick or Jonathan Frakes? Well, oh, my memory, my memory fails me at the moment. I know that in between takes, we had, you know, chit chat. Uh, you know, me introducing myself to him, but that is all I remember. I don't remember uh, any detailed chit-chat that we had. Well, I'm pretty sure you're going to remember this part, because this is probably the most notable section of the episode, which is towards the end, when all of the bad guys are basically revealing themselves as being taken over by an alien inside them, and all the characters are now eating worms. Do you remember having <laughs> to eat worms in that episode? Because that was a thing you had to do. Oh, I remember it vividly. It was <laughs> delicious. And the reason I say that is because they appeared to be worms, they appeared to be grubs, but it was actually delicious pasta. Ah. <laughs> and it was it was set in that little dish that I'm eating out of. Once again, the craftspeople behind the scenes, they, uh, uh, they made this little dish with a motor underneath and it moved. So it made it look like the pasta in it or, or the grubs or the worms in it were moving around. And so it was very, very easy to, uh, to, to enjoy eating the worms because it was pasta. I'm very glad to hear you weren't eating actual mealworms. That's a relief. <laughs> oh, my goodness. No, 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 no. <laughs> There's another part of this episode, too, where uh, once you get phasered, you fall down the floor and you got the parasite come out of your mouth. Mm -hmm. I'm not too interested in the parasite pi uh, part, but what I am interested in was when you take that fall after you've been blasted by Picard and Riker, was that you actually taking the fall since you've got this now experience from being in all, all the marbles or was that a stunt person? Yes. Yes, I did. And it wasn't a hard fall either. After all the marbles, that was easy as pie. Yeah. They told me exactly what they wanted. They gave me the outline where I should fall. And, of course, took every precaution that I did not, you know, have any injury or, or hurt myself. But that was an easy fall for me. 
After the all mar- all the marbles prepared me well. See, I, I talk with a lot of stunt performers, and they tell me you know, a lot of times there's utility doubles who will even step in for an actor being splashed with a glass of water, not even taking anything real physical. So it's great to hear you actually taking mm-hmm. your bumps. <laughs> yes. Yes, I have. So I, I want to ask if you actually watched the episode when it first aired, and the reason I'm asking is because this episode is really known for its ending, because it's a very gory, very non-Star Trek ending, where they basically phaser an alien to the point that it explodes, and it's a violent, bloody mess. So did you actually watch that when it first aired? You know, I have a habit. It's very interesting. I, I don't know. I haven't come to terms with what this is about yet. I'm better at it. And what that is, is that I don't particularly like watching myself on the small screen or the big screen. So I did not watch it right away. I do recall watching it later on. Uh, months had gone by, and, and I took a look at it, and I went, oh, and yeah, at that evening, it, it was very, I mean, I had read it. Reading it in the script is one thing, but seeing it happen, and, and, and I have to agree. I've never heard it put into terms that way, but it was an unlikely Star Trek ending. Um, but I guess they wanted to make sure those little aliens never came back. I don't know. <laughs> but I did see it. And I continue to watch it now because I see different things. Uh, every time I watch something, uh, I see something different in it or something differently that I might have done. But that's in the past you now, and I can't change it. But yes, I have watched it and I've seen it many times now. So that was your adventure as Captain Trilus Scott, but I'm curious if you ever got called back to do any other roles or had interest in appearing on other Star Trek shows. Oh, I would have loved it. I would have been there in a moment, but that never, that did not occur. Yet. <laughs> Yet is the key word. Excellent. Now, uh, did you find that after you appeared on Star Trek, were jobs easier to get or harder to get because you did this sci-fi show? No, um, they were not easier to get. And I have, I, part of my, my being is I, I'm a chameleon. I can change one strand of my hair and I look completely different. So when I'm out auditioning or when I was auditioning, um, I, I never looked the same. I think the voice may be the same and the stature, yes, of course. But it was not relatable until years later that people you, could put those two things together. And so, no, it, it, but it definitely did not make it easier. So after Star Trek, you continue on with your career. You get to do an uh, episode of Dookie Hauser, Grace Under Fire. And uh, since you brought up comedy, we're going to talk uh, about your appearance on Seinfeld, because you got to be on an episode of Seinfeld in their last season. <laughs> and that episode yeah. is called The Burning, where you played Dr. Wexler. And you got to work directly yeah. with Michael Richards, uh, Brian Poson, and Danny Woodburn as these characters go to a medical school to act out symptoms of diseases for medical students to practice diagnosing. And uh, as mm-hmm. well as that scene, you also got to work with Daniel Day Kim really before he got as known as he is today. But uh, I just want to know, what, what was it like being on set with Michael Richards and being able to work on Seinfeld? Were you a fan of the show at the time? Oh, I was a fan of the show, and it was out-the-box crazy. And once again, I'm going to use the words, it was absolutely surreal, you know, to see these, these master craftsmen go at their work and be just as funny in person as they are on film, on TV. Um, it was joy. It, it was just joyful. When I'm doing my work, I am in my, 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 my happy place, and I'm in my safe space, and, and I come prepared, and I'm ready to work. And that's what it was, you know, and to be in the room with all these, these master artisans, 
I was great. It was just wonderful. I don't know how else to explain it. It was, and and Jerry Seinfeld. He, he's he's just such a low key, great character. You know, um, I don't know. Okay, I can't explain anymore, Matthew. Um, I'm smiling now because of the experience. It was just a great experience. I had I've been fortunate enough to really liked being where I was, good, bad, or indifferent. Um, what was going on around me, I knew what my purpose was, and it was great to interact with all of these energy, these energies, and bring my stuff to it, and we make we make it work. I just watched the episode yesterday, and I, I'm just trying to imagine you on set keeping a straight face while Michael Richards is pantomiming. <laughs> Uh, well, having gonorrhea and then having uh, all this other stuff he has. I mean, were you able to actually keep a straight face throughout the entire take? Uh, nope. <laughs> <laughs> I would uh, turn away, and then I had that clipboard in my hand, and <laughs> I'd be behind the clipboard cracking up. But we did. We 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 got to it, you know, because the camera wasn't on me most of the time when I was having, and I, and that was that afforded me the opportunity to use that clipboard and to just, yeah, next take. <laughs> but it was not, it, it was not easy at all. He is a funny guy. Well, let's fast forward a little bit now to 2011. Uh, and you're in a movie called flood streets, which uh, you're starring alongside very talented Harry Shear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just to give a little bit of background for our listeners, what this is about. Harry had been living in New Orleans since uh, the end of the 80s, and he became a very outspoken advocate in the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. That led him to make the documentary called The Big Easy, which was all about how uh, Hurricane Katrina had affected the people in Louisiana. And uh, then he went on to make Flood Streets, uh, starring and executive producing that film, which you were cast in, and uh, it's a really tremendous dramatic role. Uh, can you talk a little bit about that film and what attracted you to be a part of it? Well, what attracted me was that I was actually living in uh, New Orleans at the time. Uh, I, I was in Baton Rouge, and uh, I got a call from the agent that uh, was working with me there in the Southeast at that time, and I went out. And uh, when I read the script, I went, this is such a poignant piece. This um uh, the event itself was so tragic, and to be able to use uh, the creativity and the talent that I've been given to individualize, I mean, to make this real for myself, I did not have anyone that was a part of it, but being there, being on those streets, walking into that house that this character lived in, Seeing the watermarks, it just broke my heart. And um, you could feel the energy of the devastation that had taken place there. And so it was more than motivation to delve into that character. And this is a character of substantial depth, even though you know she was not on camera that long. She was not the central character. But she was an integral character because it spoke volumes for all those people that ended up in that position and we might not know uh, know about. So I was very, very pleased to be able to be there and to do that kind of work. And as we're discussing this, I can almost hear in your voice uh, kind of a change in you that 
now that we're discussing this movie and how it affected you directly as well. So again, we're coming back to that internal becoming external. What part of yourself did you put into that character in Flood Streets? Hmm. That's a good question. And I should add, especially for folks who haven't uh, seen this movie, it's a really great ensemble piece also. Everybody's really, really great performances all around. And I think for people who know you, especially just from Star Trek, this is a great look at what you can do with your abilities more than what we saw on Next Generation. Mm-hmm. And in what, and to answer your question, the only word that's coming up for me is remote. I have a uh, part of me that because that becomes very silent and very remote. And I think that part of me served me well by being able to drudge up those very deep feelings um, that applied. And it it moves me to a place of um, deeper understanding and a deeper connection uh, even though I was not there, that I, too, am a part of this. So it, it's the remote spaces in me that, that I can go in and just become very quiet and very still and allow these energies, these elements to speak through me. Uh, uh, <laughs> yes. I know it's hard to explain, and uh, you're doing a good job. Yeah, I'll to, say that much for for our listeners to understand what this experience is like. <laughs> yeah, to speak through that character. That character gave me opportunity to use to use the remote part of who I am. So I'd like to follow that up with another uh, dramatic performance you did more recently, actually, and that's a film called All or Nothing, and uh, it's based on a true story. <laughs> I'd like you kind of first just to tell our audience what that movie's about, and. Uh, just how how much of yourself again was in that role? Because that seemed like another very personal kind of film for you. Yeah, it's very personal. Um, of course, we see this 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 subject matter has been done over and over and over again. And what I mean by that is the enslaved people of this country. Uh, when we think of enslavement, we normally think of the South, but this was an eye opener and based on a real story. Uh, these are people 21. It's, uh, if you want to look up the incident, it's called the escape of the 21. And this happened in mid-America. So, and we traveled to that area. We shot in Detroit and Chicago and uh, not Chicago, but Detroit. Yes, Detroit and Chicago. And uh, there was one other place that we were in as well. And to um, go through that experience experience. Um, it, it was heart-wrenching. Uh, you got the opportunity to sit, be, and these, we actually shot on these, these beautiful spaces that were plantations that, that, that were, that had people enslaved on them. And so that energy is still there. And, um, wow, Uh, the director, um, I'd worked with him many times before as a student here. I did a lot of his student films when he was studying here at LACC. And so when he called me to do this, he actually wrote me in as the wife of one of the real life characters. My character is a fictional character, 
but she represents all the stories of the women who were there and we don't hear from. And so that was my motivation um, to shine the light on these women that have had this experience and you don't really hear about them. I'm hoping you could shed some insight also uh, as a performer. When you talk about these experiences, you know, it takes clearly a lot of mental and emotional toll on yourself to be in those environments, to be in these plantations, to be even, I imagine just even being in costume on set for this type of a film just takes a lot of toll on yourself. So as a performer, what do you do to handle all of this weight that's put on you? Mm. You know, I think I'm fully, I think I came here. I think we, I, and I said this earlier, we all come here with something to do. I have always been very <laughs> dramatic and deeply silent. I did not know why that was, but that is what serves me. It serves me very well. Um, I've always been a reader, so I love the research part of it. And in, in no matter what that character is on the uh, page, I always research. And then I take that research into my imagination. And uh, all these things serve me in connecting with that character, but I don't have to live with it once I'm done. You know, I can go into it and I can come out of it. And um, uh, these elements of me, um, I've always been connected with the sadness of who I am. I would cry at the drop of a hat. I remember my mother saying she'd walk through the room and my sister, my young sister and I are, are watching TV and we're both sitting there crying. It could have been a TV commercial. I'm easily moved to tears. It's not that I weep all the time, but when it comes, I allow it to happen. And so um, I think that was one of the pieces. This takes me back to my mentor, Milton Tatt. Sellis introduced me to the universal principle of the art of being, the art of allowing. You, you cannot be unless you allow these things to come through. So without putting dampers on it, without putting filters on it, I am just there and I allow it to come through. And that takes me sometimes in places that I never thought I would go, but I love it. I love being able to connect in that way. And I just want to add on top of that as well, something I've noticed now that I've gotten to look at a lot of your work that isn't just Star Trek, I've, I've found that in all the roles you play, even the comedic ones, there's like this quiet strength and pride to everything that you do. Uh, what would you attribute to that sort of inner strength that you portray in all of your roles? Um, I call it the women in white. I was raised in a household of women, women, women. My grandfather was there. My uncles were there, but not all the time. My grandf I grew up with in my grandfather's house, so he was a mainstay. But surrounded me were women. I call them women in white because on Sunday, these women would dress up in their whites and they would do whatever was necessary to do in the community, whether it was healing, whether it was going to see the sick, whether it's feeding, uh, nurturing, uh, take, uh, birthing, all those things. I attribute that to the women I grew up in, uh, being surrounded by. Uh, I, I think that seeing that energy um, uh, I call them substantial women. They worked with everything they had. They bought 
everything they had. And uh, I think that's part of it. And then one of my other favorite people is Robert De Niro. And I happened to be in his presence at one time, and he was very quiet and very reserved and very pulled back. And later I heard him say in an interview that he is not outgoing, he is shy. And I think most of us who walk around with this, this, this powerhouse of energy are very reserved and very, quote, shy. Um, as a matter of fact, Scott said to me, I, <laughs> and I didn't know he thought this about me, he says, I'm wondering when you're going to stop being so shy, but that's my reservedness. That's what you just said. Um, yeah. But it's the surroundings I grew up in and the time that I grew up and the investment in the community, the, the investment in the family at that time. I believe is what contributed to this. I think this is one of the things I like doing about this podcast is that I get to kind of see the full circle journey of my guests. And in this case here, I'm kind of seeing now the, where you pulled this inner strength from as a young person and now where we are today and some of the more recent work you're doing as an educator, uh, which involves the mythical figure of uh, Calafia. So I'd like you to kind of tell, uh-huh. a little, tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing to bring more attention to Calafia. And just for our listeners who don't know, who is this person? Well... They say that she's a myth, but for me, a myth is only based on a cultural and oral cultural history. Kalafia is the name of the warrior general that the state of California is named for. So I have been researching her for years. When I was at, when I was studying at the Inner City Cultural Center, I got an opportunity to work with the director of that place. His name was C. Bernard Jackson. And he wrote a piece called Piano Bar. And in that was this character called, uh, she was not called Calafia, but formation came through out of that play. And it was so intriguing for me. I started researching because I didn't know anything about it. And she's not taught about in schools, and most people don't know a lot about her. Um, and so I've been researching and researching, and the word Calafia is not who she is. It is a title. So these are women who led their people into war, into, par- into uh, government. They were the go-to. It is the power of the community, and it's the title that they carry. Now, what I have been doing is I've been doing lots of readings with her. I had uh, I've written some pieces, and uh, I presented her in Leaders Theater. I'm trying to figure out now how to continue with it, and I believe it's going to be through a mix of culture and history and spoken word and poetry. I love to move, I love to dance, and so that I, I bring that element as as well because I found out when a lot of warriors go into battle, they first write a letter to their family in case they don't come back and they burn that. That's ritual to me and I love ritual. Um, they dance. It's like, and, and that was the line that got me. It's like the body black and streaming and dancing into battle. And so I dance on the stage into battle. And uh, 
oh, such a powerful, powerful um, um, energy that is. Um, I have done it for adults. I do it uh, for young people as well. And the young people are so engaged because they see all these elements coming together and they can see themselves on that stage. And that gives me the most... Um, uh, uh, that that gives me the impetus to really move forward is into enlightening them of this unknown, this unsung history that nobody talks about. And, and I believe that is my mission. She is not the only one. There are many characters out there of color, many women characters of color that I do. I, I love to breathe life into and bring them forward. So um, I'm putting together the things that I've written and hopefully have a piece, maybe an hour long, that I can start presenting again. Well, I look forward to that and hopefully you tour and come my way in New York. I'd love to be able to see it. Oh, I'd love to do that. Thank you. So I understand also that you've got a really very big love uh, with Billie Holiday. You've done some work with her as a character. Uh, can you tell us a little bit mm-hmm. about, about the performances that you've done about Billie Holiday? Mm-hmm. Yes, um, it was a... Um, uh, usually a Christmas celebration where all of these wonderful entities that we know, the Billy Ecksteins, Sarah Bonds, uh, Billy Holiday would gather at this place. It's based on real life. They would come to this particular restaurant and they would perform, you know, for the men overseas, for the people in the neighborhood and the whole number. And I got the great opportunity of using my voice and singing not one, but two Billy Holiday songs. Um, I also did more research into her and found out that not only was she what history says she was, but she was also an activist. And there's a book that I'm reading now, and I'd love to be able to work on that aspect of her in a one-person show. So uh, it was amazing, amazing, amazing. And I was, of course, very timid to step into those shoes because my voice is, my singing voice is not something I use a lot outside of my shower. But the more I did it, the more I was able to connect with the music, to connect with the words, and it became very presentable. And so I'm proud of that work. And you mentioned that Billie Holiday was an activist. And really, a lot of the the people of color who were entertainers in the 40s, 50s, 60s, they were all, or many of them were very invested in a lot of politics at the time. We had the civil rights movement going on. Yeah. So were there any other performers that really had an impact on you growing up during that era that you looked at being on stage and screen, but also saw them and their activism? Mm. Um, Lena Horne, um, Nina Simone, uh, Harry Belafonte, Sidney Poitier. They were all activists, um, as well as lending their time and their talent and their money to causes and opening, continuing to open those doors through which I'm able to walk. Um, There's so many more of them uh, whose names are unsung, but those are the ones that are on top of my head right now. Uh, And Billy, one more thing about Billy Holiday, the song that she made so phenomenal, Strange Fruit, was actually written as a poem first, and uh, and it began and it morphed into a protest song. So when that 
song, uh, when I hear it, uh, I have a whole nother take on it now. It's not just a beautiful, moving piece of music that, that highlights a horrendous time in our history, but it has a double meaning. You know, it, it, it is, it, it's here in this jazz genre, but it's also very historical, and it is a part of activism. So aside from your work doing that right now, what else is Ursuline Bryant doing in 2020? <laughs> well, I have always been a teaching artist. And uh, I started many years ago in the city of, uh, for the city. I actually worked for the city of Los Angeles. And uh, I began teaching um, through summer arts camp and after school programs and then moved into administration. And right now the city has a uh, program that I'm involved with where it is now online and is virtual and is they are certifying uh, the teaching artists for the city of Los Angeles and I'm going through that course and beyond that I do work for the city of Los Angeles in um, a venue called the Madrid Theater in in the valley uh, before that, I spent six years at the Vision Theater in Lamert Park, where I actually ran the house and uh, was able to afford opportunities to that area of Los Angeles where they came in, uh, writers, producers, directors, and we were able to give them a space to explore their work and their talents. So I love the background of the business. I love the business of the business, but my passion is the performance art. I, I had a class, I have a class of um, uh, elders that are so wise and so talented, and there's not really a continual space for them to perform. So they got the opportunity to uh, work on all of that talent and bring forth that creativity through the class and through a lot of the readers' uh, theaters projects that I've been involved with. So I'm this class that I'm taking is so wonderful. It's bringing me up to date with what's actually going on in the teaching artist world. And so it's only enriching me so that I can go back to that class and take this information to them so we can broaden that scope and bring their energy and their emotion and their talent and put it out there. And so that's what I'm doing now. All right. Now I'm sitting in my window in my living room working remotely from home. So Ursuline, thank you so much for being on the show. I have one last question for you, and that's what mm -hmm. is the best thing about being a part of the Star Trek universe? Oh, there are so many things, but I'm going to bring this up because lately it is increased. It is the fans. Because of Scott Ray and his stick to itiveness, I was able to do my first signing convention. The fans are incredible. They know Captain Trita Scott. They know her dialogue. They followed her. I continue to get fan mail from all over the world. And that makes me feel that the drop in the bucket that I was able to contribute to is phenomenal. And it, it reaches so many people. And it's the gift that keeps on giving. They're incredible. 
All right. Well, Ursula and Bryant, thank you so much for your time. And to Captain Trilus Scott, thank you for your service with Starfleet. We really appreciate your time today. And thanks for just chatting with us about your entire career and everything you've been doing before, after, and during Trek times. Thank you, Matthew. It was a pleasure. I want to thank Ursula for joining us this week and sharing so many great stories with us. As we mentioned earlier, the episode of Next Generation that Ursula appeared in was one with quite a bit of controversy attached to it. When Conspiracy first aired in the UK, several minutes of the show were censored, specifically the scene with Remick being blown up. When the episode aired in Canada, it came with a viewer discretion warning. As for those evil little parasites, they were teased at the end of the episode to be a greater threat and that they would return, but they never did come back to stir up any trouble again. At least not in the TV series. They did make a comeback in a DC Comics Next Generation issue from 1992, written by prolific Trek author Michael Jan Friedman, where the aliens were revealed to be called the Onglatu. They returned once more in a short story from the Lives of Dax anthology novel in 1999, which tied them into a much bigger story arc that, frankly, we need a whole other day to talk about that. So thank you for listening to this week's episode of Trek Untold. And if you haven't already, please subscribe to the show. And if you can, leave a review and rating. We'd appreciate it very much. You can also follow us on social media. Just look for Trek Untold on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. We'd love to hear from you and let us know what you think about the show. If you'd like to support this podcast, check out patreon.com slash trekuntold to learn how you can keep our ship operating at full power. Once again, thank you to our sponsor, Triple Fiction Productions, and shout out to Scott Ray for setting up this interview. If you'd like to book this week's guest for a convention appearance or an autograph signing event or anything else, you can email Scott at scottray67 at aol.com. This has been Trek Untold. I'm Matthew Kaplowitz, and until next time, fortune favors the bold.